Good morning, church. I want to start out today by asking you a question. How would you feel if I were to tell you someone sees you? Now, my guess is your initial response would probably be to be creeped out by that. And then when you actually stop and thought about it for a little bit, you'd realize that the context of who sees you and why they see you actually makes a big difference in how you feel to know that they're seeing you. So for example, if, if someone you're in love with sees you, it can give you tender and affectionate feelings towards them. If your boss tells you, hey, I see you and the hard work you've been doing, that actually can make you feel really appreciated. On the flip side, if you're doing something wrong and a police officer says, hey, I see you, that can actually make you scared of the consequences that you're about to face. And, you know, since it's Christmas time, I have to ask, how about Santa? You know what the song says, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake. If Santa sees you, does that make you nervous that you'll end up with a lump of coal? Or does it make you excited because you're pretty confident that you made the nice list? Who sees us, why they see us, and what they do when they see us makes a big difference in whether them seeing us is good news that comforts us or bad news that terrifies us. And today, we're going to continue in our journey through Luke and we're going to arrive at the cross. And in today's passage, Jesus, God in human flesh, he sees several people. How would that make you feel if I told you that God sees you? Would you be nervous because you just feel unworthy of him? Would you be excited? Would you be scared because you feel like you've failed him? Well, in today's passage, each time Jesus sees the people around him, it's good news for them. Each time, Jesus shows them extraordinary compassion and grace. And in today's sermon, we're going to zoom in on these interactions and see what we can learn from the way that Jesus interacts with the people around him. And what we're going to see is that the sentence, God sees you, is some of the best news possible in your life. So today we're going to look at Luke chapter 23, verses 26 through 56, and we'll see that Jesus sees and loves the people around him. We'll look at the people at the cross, his father, and you. But first, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for him seeing us and loving us. And I pray that you'd be with us today as we look at your word. Help us to hear what you're saying to us and to fall more in love with him as we see his love for us. In Jesus' name. Amen. So first up, we'll look at the people at the cross. And as we start looking at today's passage, let me just recap briefly where we've been recently in our journey through Luke. It's now Good Friday, the day of Jesus' death. The night before, on Thursday evening, Jesus started the evening having one last meal with his disciples, his closest followers and friends. Since then, one of his 12 closest friends has sold Jesus out and led an armed mob to arrest him. Jesus was put on trial illegally. While he was on trial, one of his other 12 closest friends lied three times and said that he had never met Jesus before in his life. Jesus has been beaten and mocked over and over and over again. He's had people spitting on him. They dressed him up in royal robes and bowed down to him to make fun of him. They stuck a crown of thorns onto his head, again to make fun of him and further injure him. Presumably with everything happening, he hasn't been able to sleep at all, so he's probably 
exhausted, and he's been put on trial with multiple different Roman rulers who all said, this man is innocent, and yet an angry mob of his fellow countrymen said, we don't care, kill him anyway, and the ruler said, fine. Which means that Jesus is now walking down a crowded street, basically naked, so that everyone from the city can see him and laugh at him one more time before he gets killed. His body is too weak to function, so they need to get someone else to come and carry the cross for him. I don't know about you, if that happened to me, I would call it a bad day. Anyone else? That's a bad day, right? Actually, any one of those things happening in and of themselves would be enough to ruin my day. Forget putting them all together like Jesus just had. Actually, if I'm being honest, it takes far less than any of those things to drive me nuts. You want an example of something that drives me nuts? Having to deal with incompetent customer service representatives. Anyone else ever, ever done that? I hate it. Hate it when I have to call up customer service. It doesn't matter the reason, I hate it. Because here's what happens. I sit down to make the call and I'm like, okay, I know this is gonna be a pain, but I'm gonna have a good attitude and I am going to be kind to the people on the other end of the line. And I make the call and there's not a person on the other end of the line, there's a computer. And I have to type in a series of buttons for several minutes before I finally get to the option to even talk to a human being. And then I finally hit that button to talk to a human being. And you know what happens? Elevator music. And a voice that says, thank you for waiting. Your call is important to us. And I'm annoyed, but I knew that was coming, so I'm still okay. But five minutes later, the elevator music is still playing. <laughs> and for the 20th time, this voice comes on and says, thank you for waiting. Your call is important to us. And about this time, I start to erupt. And I say, really? If my call was that important to you, why have you not answered it yet? And anyone who's in my general vicinity gets to hear my complaining. And then, however many minutes later, someone eventually picks up the call. And they have me answer a long series of questions about what's wrong. And then, feels like more often than not, they say, sorry, we can't deal with that issue. Let us transfer you to this other department that can. So then they click a button and what do I get? More elevator music, more messages. Thank you for waiting. Your call is important to us. And after a few more minutes of waiting, someone else picks up the phone and I have to answer the exact same questions all over again to tell them what is wrong. And this person inevitably says, sorry, we can't handle that. Let us transfer you to someone else. And rather than transferring me to the people who actually can help me, they send me back to the original people that transferred me to them. And at this point, I lose it, right? My resolution to be kind and to have a good attitude has been murdered. I no longer care who gets hurt in the process. I just want my issue taken care of. And God forbid, that Judah should spill something or hurt himself when I'm at this point in the conversation, because if that happens, he's not getting kind and compassionate daddy to come help him and care for him. The frustration and anger that I'm feeling towards these people who are supposed to be helping me, it's gonna spill out on my poor, hurting one-year-old. On my own power, 
I am completely incapable of showing love in that moment. Can anyone else relate to that? And if you think about it, if we zoom out, that's a relatively brief interaction with people who are genuinely trying to do whatever they can to help me in contrast with Jesus, who's had a prolonged interaction right here with people who are genuinely out to hurt him and kill him. And that makes what Jesus is about to, to do in these interactions we're going to look at so amazing. Because he has just endured a harsher 24 hours than any of us have ever endured in our lives. Way worse than my 15-minute annoying customer service call. And as these interactions happen, he's still surrounded by this angry mob that is calling for and celebrating his murder. And yet in the midst of it, he has this awareness to see the needs of the people around him and address them in love. And it starts with some woman. Now again, imagine yourself in Jesus' position here. You're wounded from being beaten all night long exhausted from not getting sleep, probably hungry, humiliated, on your way to a painful and violent death, too weak to function, what would you be thinking about right here? I would probably be growing weeds of bitterness in my mind. I'd be replaying all the ways that I've been wronged in the past 24 hours, and I would just have a big old pity party for myself. I would not have the awareness to see the people around me and empathize with them. That's not happening if Eric Scott is in that situation. And yet on the way to the cross, we see Jesus again and again and again, noticing the people around him, engaging with them in love, and choosing a different way than I would ever have chosen. So Luke tells us there were some women who were following Jesus and mourning for him. Now realize, Jesus in this scene, he's moving forward towards the place where they're going to kill him. These women are not in front of him, they're behind him. And so Jesus, to, to see these women, he has to turn away from the direction he's moving. That's why Luke tells us in verse 28 that, that Jesus turned to them. He redirected his attention away from the direction he was going towards them. Now remember, his body is covered in open wounds. Turning like this, that's going to hurt. And he's got Roman soldiers trying to keep him moving forward. If he turns away from the direction these Roman soldiers want him to go, there's a good chance that he's going to get hit again and bring even more pain upon himself. And yet Jesus notices these women. He turns to them and he speaks to them. He sees them. He decides any extra pain that it costs to show love to them, it's worth it because he cares about them. And he speaks to them and he says, don't cry for me. Cry for yourselves because there is a time of suffering that is coming for you. Now, what's going on here? Well, basically what he's saying is, look, I'm, I'm a guy who's been calling for peace. If this is how the Romans treat me, the guy who calls for peace, think about what they're going to do to you and your children when you guys actually rebel against them in the near future. It's going to be brutal and terrible. He's warning them that something far worse is coming for them and calling them to prepare for it because he loves them. And in case you're curious, the thing that he is pointing to actually happens in the year 70 AD when Jerusalem rebels and Ro Rome tears Jerusalem to the ground. They lay siege to the city. The famine gets so bad that mothers boil their own children to eat. And everyone looks around the city and says, yeah, 
you're better off if you don't have children right now because you don't have to deal with the option of whether or not you're gonna kill them and eat them so you can survive. It got brutal. But in this moment, on his way to the cross, look what Jesus does. He points the attention away from himself and away from his suffering and onto the people around him who need support through their suffering. He sees them. He loves them. But these women aren't the only ones that Jesus sees and loves in this passage. He also shows love for his killers. I don't know how much you know about crucifixion, but it is one of the cruelest and most painful ways ever developed by humanity to kill another person. The Romans reserved it for the absolutely worst criminals, and it was designed to make an example of these people so that other people would be discouraged from even thinking about doing what these guys did. And in order to discourage people from following in their footsteps, crucifixion aimed to combine maximum humiliation with maximum pain and suffering. So what they would do, they'd display you in a very public place, hanging up for everyone to see totally naked. And you'd be stuck there on public display, hanging out like this, as your lungs slowly filled with blood over a series of hours or sometimes days until you suffocated and died because your lungs were full of your own blood. If you were a criminal who was being crucified, your emotions would be a blend of fear, rage, anger, desire for revenge, and despair, probably hatred. Normally, criminals being crucified would want to lash out however they could just to make life a little bit harder or more miserable for the people who were killing them. That's what's normal for someone being crucified. And then comes Jesus. As Jesus is being nailed to the cross, he looks at the people who are putting him up to die. And rather than anger and rage, he feels compassion. He looks at them, he sees them, he sees their weakness and their ignorance, and he loves them. And we can see this in his prayer for them. In verse 34, he says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Look what's happening here. Jesus isn't crying out for justice about those who are, against those who are treating him unjustly. He's not complaining about how terrible his fate is. He's not trying to get whatever revenge he can against them. He's asking for them to be forgiven. He's intentionally laying down his right to seek revenge because even in his darkest moment, he wants their good, not their suffering. He sees them. He sees these broken, sinful people. He sees that they're in need of a savior and hopeless without one. He, he sees them acting in hurtful ways because they themselves are hurting. And because he sees them, not just how they're making him feel in the moment, he's able to respond to even his killers with compassion and love. How do you feel about that response? Do you wish that you had the ability to love and forgive in that way? Is part of you wondering, what would it take for me to be able to love and forgive someone else the way that Jesus does? Jesus sees the people who are killing him, and when he sees them, he loves even them. But again, he doesn't stop there. He also sees this criminal on the cross. This happens starting in verse 39. And remember, by the time we get to this point, where Jesus' interaction with the criminal starts, he's been hanging on the cross for a while. If you were a criminal, 
put on a cross. In order to breathe, you had to pull yourself up to lunge for a breath. And you were pulling up against the nails that were in your wrists. It was brutally painful just to take a breath as you hung on the cross. To speak would cause terrible pain because that's taking extra breath, causing you to have to pull up extra on those nails. You want to preserve all the breath you can. His throat was probably sore at this point as well. Commentators have pointed out that if you look through the Gospels and you look at all the things that Jesus says from the cross as he's hanging there, each time the things that he says get shorter and shorter and shorter. And they guess that that's because as he's hanging up on the cross, his pain is increasing. It's becoming more and more difficult and painful to breathe and speak. And as he's in that condition, one of the criminals hanging next to him to die joins in with the crowds and starts mocking him. And Jesus stays silent. He doesn't lash out at this man. He doesn't respond in anger. He simply stays silent. But then the other criminal speaks. He defends Jesus and he asks Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And it's at this point that Jesus speaks again. He hears the request of this condemned criminal. He doesn't ignore this man because this criminal has done terrible things in his life. He doesn't stay silent because it just hurts to talk. Jesus notices this man. He pays attention to him. He sees him. And when Jesus speaks to this man, it's to reassure him not to condemn him. Jesus' words to this man are a promise that despite his crimes, this thief will be in paradise with Jesus that very day. Even in his darkest moment, on the verge of death, Jesus is focused on the people around him, seeking to bless them in any way that he can. So as we look through these interactions, I don't know about you, I am amazed by the emotional awareness and availability of Jesus as he interacts with these people. You know, there's something beautiful about it, but also something so terrifying about it, right? It's beautiful because even in this moment of suffering, he has such freedom. He's so clearly not a victim of his circumstances. He has perfect self-control throughout his crucifixion experience. He doesn't let the things happening around him or the things happening to him stop him from loving the people around him who need his love. That's beautiful, right? I mean, I think we can all agree, if everyone in the world loved in this way, the world would be a far better place to live. On the other hand, Jesus' response is terrifying because when I look at it, I see how far short I fall of loving others in this way. Right? Seeing Jesus in this way shows me how simple and broken my own heart is. I know there's nothing I can do in my own effort or willpower to make me that loving and kind. And I have this fear, this fear that if I try to love others in this way, I'm going to get taken advantage of and I'm going to be hurt. And that brings me to this question, how is Jesus able to love this way? Especially when he's in the middle of so much suffering himself, how can Jesus love this way? And to answer that question, let's look at his father. And what we see when we look at his father is that Jesus is able to love this way because he knows that his father sees him. Last week, we looked at Jesus' prayer in the garden before he was arrested. He said, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. 
All throughout his journey to the cross, Jesus has been walking in the path that his father prepared for him. And Jesus knows that as he walks in obedience, his father sees him and loves him. And we can also see this in in Jesus' last words before he dies in verse 46 of today's passage, where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Despite his suffering, Jesus has complete confidence in his heavenly father. He knows that his father will watch over him and take care of him, even in death. He knows that when he is unjustly killed, his father will vindicate him. He knows that his father will prove once and for all that even though Jesus was killed as a criminal, he was innocent and he was the one in the right. And knowing that gave Jesus great confidence, even when from a human perspective, everything in his life was going wrong. Now I want to compare Jesus' confidence in his father to yours and mine. Do you have complete confidence in your heavenly father? Actually, let's take a step back. Because I know for many people, the idea of God as a heavenly father, actually that idea in the first place doesn't feel very comforting. So when I refer to God as our father, does that inspire joy and excitement in you that makes you want to run to him? You know, maybe for some of us it does, but for many of us, thinking of God as a father actually makes us want to stay away from him. Maybe your human father isn't someone who would be described as kind or caring or compassionate. Maybe your human father never thought you were good enough. And when you think of God as your father, you think of someone who will never see you as good enough for him. The idea of God as your father just gives you one more authority figure in life that you can disappoint by not being good enough. Maybe when you think of God as your father, you're reminded of all the ways that you've failed God and you feel unworthy to stand before him. And you think, God is my father, just gives me one more authority figure that I have to be careful around so he doesn't get upset with me like my human father did. And if you see God in this way, you're never going to depend on him the way that Jesus did. If you see God as a tyrant or a distant father or an apathetic father or a a father who can never be pleased, You're never going to depend on him the way that Jesus did. You're never going to have the freedom to love others that dependence on God brings. Because really, if I don't believe that God will watch over me or care for me or vindicate me, and instead I believe that God's going to be judgmental and hostile towards me, how am I going to live life? I'm going to fight for myself and ignore the needs of those around me because if I don't look out for myself, no one else is going to look out for me either, right? And my guess is there are some of us who constantly fight for ourselves, who fail to love others or look out for their good because we, we cringe at the idea of God being our father. I also guess some of us, maybe we get excited about the idea of God as our father. We get warm, fuzzy feelings when we think about how much he loves us. But then when you look at our lives, we still just look out for ourselves. We don't show this type of sacrificial love for others. What's going on there? Well, if that's you, if you're excited about God as your father, but you still only look out for yourself, it's a sign that there are big parts of your heart that don't really believe God is your father who watches over you, who cares for you, who will vindicate you. You like the idea of God as father, but in real life, it just feels too good to be true. So you don't live like it's true. You look out for yourself like you would do if you didn't have a heavenly father. 
In order to be aware and available to love others like Jesus was, we need to learn to stop fighting for ourselves. We won't be set free from fighting for ourselves until we realize that God, our Father, is fighting for us. Which brings us to another question. How do we reach that point where we can really believe that God is our Father who looks out for us and fights for us? Especially since, I mean, if you look at the Bible, on our own power and by our own good works, we are unworthy to stand before him. So how can we count on it that he is going to fight for us and protect us and look out for us? It's by remembering that on the cross, Jesus also saw you. Let's talk about you. See, looking at Jesus' acts of love to the woman and to his killers and to the thief on the cross, that's great. But it doesn't completely get to the heart of why Jesus went to the cross in the first place. Do you know why Jesus went to the cross? He went to the cross because in our suffering and misery, God saw us. He went to the cross because yes, you and I on our own are unworthy to stand before God. You and I on our own, we are not good enough for God to love us. But God made a rescue plan, a plan to make us worthy and to make us good enough. So Jesus, the one who is worthy, the one who is good enough, he stepped in and bore the wrath of God that you and I deserved so that we can now stand before God and have him look at us and say, I am pleased with you. You know, there are some people in the world today, they have this idea, Jesus died on the cross to show us how much God loves us. And these people don't like the idea of Jesus being a sacrifice in our place. They think that's too violent and too cruel that a loving God could never do that to his son. So they say, you know, th this is just, the cross is just God's way of showing us that he loves us. And the truth is that yes, Jesus' death does show us how much God loves us, but it only shows his love for us because it actually accomplishes something that objectively changes things between us and God. Think about it, if I was out walking with Justine one day and I saw a dump truck driving down the road and I just started to run for the jumping in front of it and I shouted back to Justine over my shoulder as I was running, I'm doing this to show you how much I love you. If you saw that happening, you would not think to yourself, oh, how kind and loving of a husband Eric is. No, you would think Eric is insane and needs to be locked up. And you would be right to think that because enduring suffering for the sake of suffering doesn't demonstrate love. Me running in front of a dump truck doesn't show Justine that I love her. Just like Jesus dying on the cross in and of itself doesn't show us how much he loves us. But you know what would make it a great demonstration of love for me to run in front of a dump truck? If Justine was standing in front of that dump truck and I ran in front of the dump truck so I could push her out of the way and save her by getting hit in her place. That would be an amazing demonstration of love. And the Bible says that's what Jesus did on the cross. That is why it shows us God's love because Jesus took God's wrath that was aimed at us and on a collision course with us and he stepped in front of it, took it in our place so that you and I can go free. You want to see where in today's passage I'm getting this? Look at verse 45. It says the curtain of the temple was torn in two 
And I know what you're thinking, why is that important? How does that show us what you've just been explaining, Eric? Well, let me explain. One of the big storylines of the Bible is this idea of God with us. In the beginning, God made the Garden of Eden. It was perfect. God would come and walk with Adam and Eve there. They would be together. That's the ideal. But then Adam and Eve rebel against God. They sin, they disobey him. And then what happens? They're kicked out of the garden. They're separated from God. And one of the major questions and storylines of the Bible is how do we get back? How do we get back into God's presence when our sin keeps us away from him? So in Exodus chapter 33, Moses prays to God. He says, show me your glory. I want to see you exactly as you are. I want to be with you. And you know what God says to Moses? He says, no man can see me and live. Because of our sin, to come into God's presence, to see him as he is, to be with him, it means a death sentence for us. So how do we get back to being with God? Well, in the Old Testament, God gave Israel these buildings, the tabernacle and the temple. They were the center of worship for Israel. And they were huge steps in this process because they were buildings on earth where God's spirit lived among his people. God came to live among us, but there was still a problem. You know what the problem was? The part of these buildings where God's spirit lived was a part that you could not access. It was cut off from everything else by a big curtain. And if you step behind that curtain, you died. The curtain cut us off from being in God's presence. Look at verse 45. What happened when Jesus died? That curtain was torn in two. The barrier that kept you and me from standing before God has been destroyed once and for all. Jesus tore down the barrier that keeps us from God. And the constant teaching of the New Testament is that because Jesus died the death that we would owe if we tried to enter God's presence on our own, we now have free and full access to come before our Father God. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 says, we have a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, the place where God lives. We have access there because Jesus died in our place. Is that not the most amazing news ever? And God wants us there. He's our father who loves us. He's our father who's pleased with us. He's not just our father who's disappointed with us. No, he's our father who's pleased with us. Your earthly father may never be pleased with you, but your heavenly father, oh, he is pleased with you. Zephaniah 3.17 says that if we've trusted in Jesus and his death for us, God rejoices over us and sings songs to celebrate how much he enjoys having us as his children. God doesn't just love you because he has to, because someone held a gun to his head and said, you must. No, he actually likes you. He wants you to be around. There's a comedian I liked named, named Mike Birbiglia. And he has this sketch where he says, you know, I realized recently that I don't like my parents. Don't get me wrong, I love my parents, I'd do anything for them, but I don't like them. Like, if they weren't my parents, and I walked into a bar and I saw them sitting there, I wouldn't want to go say hi to them. And I think a lot of us, we can so easily slip into thinking that's how God feels about us. Yeah, he loves us because he kind of has to, because he's God, but if he actually had a choice, he wouldn't be that into us. He probably doesn't like us. And when we feel that way about God, we want to stay away from him so that we don't bother him. But the cross is God's way of saying, that's not true. The cross is God's way of crushing that lie. The cross tells us that God not only loves you, he likes you. 
He willingly chose to make the ultimate sacrifice so that you can come into his presence. If God walked into a bar and he saw you sitting there, he would want to come say hi to you because he likes you and he wants you around and he takes care of you and he looks after you. And the cross is the ultimate proof of that. When you look at Romans chapter 8, Paul's going along and he he gets this argument at the end of chapter 8 and he just says, you think God's going to hold out on you and you and, and keep from giving you the things that you need? He gave his son's life for you. He's not going to hold anything else back. He gives us everything we need because he's our father who loves us and is pleased with us. And once we get that, once we see the love that Jesus shows us on the cross, it sets us free. Because if I have a God like that, a God who fights for me and cares for me and watches out for me and gives me the things I need in life, it's so counterproductive to waste energy on bitterness or anger or worry. And I can take all the attention that I spend right now being bitter and angry and worried and instead focus that attention on seeing others and their needs. I can see not only the ways that they annoy and bother me, but I can actually see them. I can see the hurts and needs that are going on inside their life that lead them to act that way towards me. And I can respond to them with patience and love because that's how Jesus responded to me when he saw me in my hurt and brokenness. And the more I stare at the cross and I realize how undeserving I was and still am of Jesus' love and how utterly generous God my Father was in sending his Son to rescue me, the more that's going to fill my heart with awe and it's going to transform my heart and empower me to love others like Jesus does. Church, the way that Jesus loves, it's beautiful and it's terrifying. It's beautiful because if everyone loved that way, the world would be such a better place to live. But it's terrifying because there's this fear in all our hearts that if I love that way, I'm going to be taken advantage of and I'm going to lose out. And it means we can't love like Jesus on our own strength. We need to have our hearts transformed. But when we see the love that Jesus shows, not only the people he meets in this passage, but you and me, oh, it changes us. When we truly understand and believe that God is our Father who sees us and cares for us and provides for us and will make all things right even if we suffer right now, that's what's going to change us into people who love God and love others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you see us. Thank you that Jesus saw us as he was dying on the cross and he cared for us and he loved us. Thank you that you provide for all our needs. Father, I pray that you would transform our hearts as we see the beauty of this truth. You make us a community of people who love you and who love one another sacrificially because we know that you provide for us with everything we need. In Jesus' name, amen.